Today's special mailbag episode of the BS Podcast is brought to you by SeatGeek. That's our presenting sponsor since the 1970s. Find the best tickets for sporting events, music, wrestling, opera, you name it. Playoffs, NBA, NHL. What better way to find tickets at the last minute from people who are trying to get rid of them because they can't go to the game than SeatGeek? I have SeatGeek on my phone. It's by far the easiest way to shop for the best tickets thanks to their revolutionary grading system. Everything fully guaranteed. Try it out. Download the SeatGeek app today and do everything from your phone or go right to SeatGeek.com. We are also brought to you by TuneIn. Major League Baseball is finally back. The new season underway. My fantasy team, Byron Buxton, killing it again. He's 25 years old, but somehow he's killed my fantasy team for the last 20 seasons. The Ringer Podcast Network has baseball fans covered with the Ringer MLB show playing exclusively on the TuneIn app for the month of April. On top of that, the Ringer Podcast Network has partnered with TuneIn to give baseball fans a free 60-day trial of TuneIn Premium to listen to every live home call from every MLB game around the league. Catch the Ringer MLB show with Michael Bauman and Ben Lindbergh. It's very good, and it's only on TuneIn during April. With your premium subscription, listen to live MLB games on TuneIn as well. Go to TuneIn.com slash Ringer and subscribe. Download the TuneIn app. Start listening today. TuneIn. Your everything audio app. We were also brought to you, as I just mentioned, by the Ringer Podcast Network, where Shack House put up their golf podcast last night after the Masters. Joe House, he makes like half unit bets and full unit bets. He takes a couple long shot bets that he calls half units, and then he does full unit bets as well and picks like two or three guys. He had Sergio Garcia, who won the Masters, and he had Justin Rose, who finished second. It was amazing. And if you listen to the Shack House podcast, you could have heard it. You could have made money on it. I don't know why you're not listening to Shack House. Check out the Shack House podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And speaking of podcasts, uh, Pearl Jam has been doing the opening song for this podcast and the end song. We picked a couple different things from their Wrigley Field concert that they were nice enough to let us use. And they made the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last week. And it was awesome. And if you haven't checked it out, I think there's some stuff up on YouTube, but I know they're running the full show soon. But congratulations to them. Thanks for letting us use your music. Pearl Jam, everybody. All right. It is a Monday morning, West Coast time. My guest is me. I'm going to do a mailbag podcast. So here's the thing. I wanted to write an NBA awards column for this week. Last week, we did the NBA Independent Spirit Awards. I did it with Shea Serrano, Jason Concepcion, and Chris Ryan. That went up on TheRinger.com if you missed it. We handed out awards to basically all the guys who aren't eligible for the ballot in different categories. Some of them were goofy. Some of them were legit. Like best in-game dunker. I picked Russell Westbrook just because of his coast-to-coast stuff, but Shea Serrano um, said it was James Johnson. He was right. I Actually, I should have put more thought into that. I, I felt embarrassed that I didn't have James Johnson, but all that kind of stuff is in that column. This week, I'm going to tackle the awards, and I think I was pretty wise. I'm waiting until game 82, and I've been saying this for four weeks. Sometimes you know who the MVP is in mid-March. Other times, you just don't know. And you have to wait it out. And I think what we've seen these last three weeks with Russell Westbrook, who I was not going to vote for, 
and now he's making me rethink everything. I'm still going to wait. Uh, Tate, Tate has a mic. I'm going to go to Tate, Tate a couple times during this podcast. Tate hosts the, uh, the GM Street podcast with Mike Lombardi. So it's teed up. And he's been producing this podcast pretty much since day one. Tate, would you be ashamed of me if I voted for Westbrook? No. I think that it would show that you had really, you know, that you, I you weren't as set, a human being. Yeah, yeah. You weren't set in your ways. You were willing to grow and develop and let it happen, let it play out. I need, I really, voting for an MVP who can't win 48 games, <laughs> I don't know if I can get there. So I'm waiting for him. Anyway, stay tuned. I, my, that column will go up Thursday or Friday on The Ringer. But we have a lot of uh, mailbag questions right now that the reason I want to do them was there's a shelf life. By next week, I think some of these questions will be dead. So these are questions that people sent to the mailbag at the ringer.com. If you want to send a mailbag question, I might do this more often than just this one time, but if you ever want to send me a mailbag question, send it there. So here's the first one. It's from Ben from Harrogate, UK, the United Kingdom, I guess that is. Is there another UK? That's not university of Kentucky. Uh, Thank you for explaining that triple doubles have only been a big deal since the Magic Johnson era. I have always argued with my friends that this wasn't a milestone in the 60s for the simple reason that Wilt never did it. If averaging a triple-double is considered a sign of greatness, 1968 Wilt absolutely would have cranked out another 1.5 assists per game instead of merely averaging 24, 24, and 8.6. This is a great point, and this is one of the reasons that with triple-doubles... Listen, it, this can't be the number one part of your case for Westbrook. It just can't. It's an arbitrary number that we started to come up with about 35 years ago. I really enjoy them. I remember when Larry Bird, I think it was 1987, I'm going to say March or April against Washington. Moses was on Washington. And the legend, I think, came within one assist of putting up a triple-double in the first half. Or he got the triple-double in the first half. I can't. I can't remember. That was the first time I remember being really excited about a triple-double, but I don't remember even hearing about triple-doubles until Magic Johnson. And I actually went on the internets today and researched this. The term triple-double was coined, allegedly, apparently, by Bruce Jolish, a former Lakers PR director, who had decided that Magic kept getting these these double figures and points, rebounds, and assists. And he thought it was catchy, and he started calling them triple-doubles. So they really didn't take off until the early 80s. And I bring this up because Will Chamberlain was the most stat-obsessed guy we've ever had in the history of basketball. In fact, in my in my book, that was one of the reasons I downgraded him, because I wrote a whole chapter about Russell versus Wilt. And... Part of the thesis was that Russell was consumed by winning and did whatever it would take for his team to win and put his teammates in the best position to win. Wilt just cared about stats. He was all about the stats, that's it. And he operated from the standpoint of, if I'm getting my numbers, I'm getting my stats, then hopefully the team will win too. And that's that's what drove him. And that's why you know, why he, I think he was such a polarizing, frustrating player. He's certainly the most polarizing NBA player of all time. Now, if they had had triple doubles in the mid to late 60s, there's absolutely no question that Wilt would have gone for a triple double and he would have averaged a triple double. As it was in 1968 when he averaged 8.6 assists a game and he led the league. The reason he did that was because he was trying to lead the league. 
and he was passing up five foot shots to throw it out to guys taking 15 footers and he was getting mad if people missed shots. He basically lost his mind trying to win the assist title. There's no question he would have lost his mind trying to uh, get triple doubles as well. And then Magic in the 81-82 season, he averaged, I think, something like 18 or 19 points and then 9.5 assists, 9.6 rebounds, something like that. He was in the nine and a half for assists and rebounds. That's not a big jump to try to average a triple-double for a season. So my point is, it only really started to matter in the last 35 years. And I think there's a couple guys that potentially could have could have chased it. I definitely Magic could have had it in the early 80s. And I, I don't think there's any question Wilt either would have had a triple-double or he would have died trying. So anyway, I think if you're making the Westbrook case for MVP... I didn't even know. Did you know Oscar Robertson had the triple-double record of 41? Did you even know that was a thing? I didn't know it was a thing, but I also went back to his stats, and he could have had a triple-double every year. He had like 9.3, you know, 9.4, 9.7, and then that was like three years in a row, and he had he averaged a triple-double. He basically averaged it for the first five seasons of his career. Yep, with Cincinnati. Yeah, Right. Um, I don't know. I don't think that's the best case for Westbrook. To me, the best case for Westbrook, if you're going to make it, other than that he's having a spectacular statistical season, is the fact that they lost Durant. They won 55 games last year. They lost Durant, who's one of the five best players in the league, and they're going to win 47 or 48. Um, to me, it starts there. I don't, you know, triple doubles are cute. It's great. I enjoy them. That can't be the lead point of your candidacy. I, I think you have team success has to be number one, especially this year, especially with Kawhi is going to be in the 60s with the Spurs. LeBron's going to be the one seed probably for Cleveland, and uh, and Harden, you know, is going to win nine or ten more games with either the same type of supporting cast or a worse supporting cast. So, at some point, team success has to has to be the number one qualifier, uh, and I'm struggling with that because. If Westbrook can get within like seven wins of Harden, then does all the other fantastic statistical stuff uh, overshadow that? He's also had, you know, probably at, at least nine or ten games that I can remember that he just won the game in the last minute or the last 90 seconds or whatever. But he's also had an extraordinary number of opportunities to do that. For whatever reason, Harden hasn't had a lot of last-minute games, whereas the Thunder, it seems like every game they're down 15 and roaring back or they've blown an eight-point lead. It it just seems like they've had an extraordinary amount of of crunch time chances. Anyway, uh, here's from Ahad in Ottawa, Ontario. He asks, wouldn't giving Russ a well-deserved MVP help us prevent the inevitable revisionist history podcast by Malcolm Gladwell? It's been over a decade since Nash won the MVP over Kobe, who in that same season averaged 35 a game and scored fifty in eight and scored 81. Looking back, that vote feels like a mistake. I agree with you. I, vo- I voted for Kobe that year. I didn't think, I, I just didn't think Nash did enough in that year. Even though now, 11 years later, I think the advanced metric stuff and the uh, the offensive rating, all that stuff, would have supported his case better. But to me, Kobe taking that Lakers team to 45 wins. And the playoffs was a much more spectacular feat than Westbrook winning 46 to 47 with this OKC thing. I, I'm in the minority. I happen to think OKC has a has an above average supported cast. I think Oladipo's good. I think especially as a number two option, as a scorer, if he had gotten the ball even more, he could average 20 a game. 
I love Adams as a center. I love all the stuff he does. I think Canner coming off the bench is valuable. Taj they added in the last 25 games, who uh, who I think is valuable. Going down the line, Sabonis was, I think, the 10th pick in the draft or the 11th pick. And uh, Robertson's a very good defensive player. It's This is not – he's not playing with the Washington Generals. So let's stop the uh, supporting cast crap. If you go guy by guy, Houston versus OKC, I would say it's pretty even. And then if you factor in the over-unders – OKC was – do you know what OKC's over-under was heading into this season? 41 and a half. It was like 45 and a half. Oh. What do you think Houston's was? 43. 41. Mm. So Houston has overachieved by 16 wins over what people thought, and OKC is basically right where we thought. So um, we'll, t- we'll see. Time will tell if it feels like a mistake. I just think – People are sleeping on how great Harden's season was. He's first in assists. He's second in points. He's going to make 253s and 700-plus free throws. He's going to have 900 assists. He's played every game. He's made every guy on that Houston team better. And they're one of the top three teams in the league. So that's the case. Don't don't act like Harden doesn't have a case. Chris Esch, I hope I said that right, ass. Would Pop want Westbrook on his team? Would he put up the same numbers on the Spurs? My answer to these questions is no, or at least Pop would expect him to fit into their team-first concept. Kawhi does these things in a team concept. He's my MVP. Uh, yes, Pop would want Westbrook on his team. I think he could figure out how to make that work. Westbrook would not be doing the stuff he's doing at OKC on, in San Antonio. I'll put it that way. They, they do not chase stats in San Antonio, and they do not. Uh, they would never build a team around one guy it's always been about the teamwork the infrastructure the the whole being better than the sum of the parts or whatever that phrase the whole being better than the parts the sum of the whole being better than parts whatever it is uh i think westbrook would be a different player at san antonio i don't think it would be i don't think he'd be putting up the 50 16 and 15s but i think he'd be more efficient and i think he'd pick his spots better and um, it would just be different. I don't probably would not be as much fun from a league pass standpoint, but yes, I think Westbrook could fit on this purse. No question. Peter from Toronto asks, this feels a little Raptors fanny, but one of my favorite subplots of this NBA season is listening to you defend Al Horford's contract. It's hilarious. You're far too defensive. It reminds me of lost fans who defend the final season of the show. I was one of them for years. So I recognize the symptoms. I don't defend the last season of Lost anymore. The sooner you realize the Celtics gave first option money to a third option player who can't rebound, the better off you'll be. As another Bill S. once said, doth protest too much. That hurt my feelings. I like the ending with the Bill S. I really like Al Horford. They had the money to spend. I like having him on the team. He's going to put up his 15 and his 7. He knows where to go. He's a great teammate. Um, He never does anything that he can't do. He spreads the floor. He's a very good low post defender, and I stand by the contract. I don't, they're paying him like $27 million a year. I don't know what it is, but they had the money. Why not? Especially for this year, they had the money. And after that, it's, I think, three more years, and the salary cap's going to go up another $7 million this year. Yeah, I'm protesting, aren't I? All right. His free throw percentage went up 80%. Would you pay Al Horford 30 a year? Yeah. Why not? Oh, I know. That's what I'm saying. Why not? You had the money. They had the money. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks, Tate. <laughs> Poya from LA, I hope that's I said that right, said on the KD podcast, he talks about the process of becoming a villain. 
by hopping on Golden State, tarnishing his nice guy image. He had some of his most efficient games against OKC. Just as an aside, I really enjoyed this part of the Durant podcast. So I thought I was really happy with both Durant podcasts, but how he talked about answering the challenge um, when having all this hate heaped on you when you play basketball, he was almost like he wanted to know how he would respond to it. And then he responded to it in an awesome way. And it made him happy as a basketball player. He felt like he learned something about himself in the experience. So anyway, back to the question. Uh, we also saw this happen with LeBron when he went to Miami and accomplished some crazy efficiency in terms of field goal percentage. Isn't this confirming Kobe's dark muse cage theory? Is Durant harnessing his dark muse cage? Is Kobe saving the kids? I think he is, Bill. That was from Poya in Los Angeles. There is something to be said about the dark muse cage. I think what KD was talking about is is similar to what I heard Kobe saying when he was trying to explain this muse cage thing, which is pretty goddamn confusing for the most part. But uh, it's as Klosterman broke this down on the pod a couple weeks ago, where he's basically saying every player has a Darth Vader side, and when you embrace that Darth Vader, you open yourself up for greatness or something. I think that's what he was trying to say. I would say yes. Wait, whatever the hell the muse cage is, I think Durant's in it. Way from Los Angeles, two straight Los Angeles, asks, with the Thunder and Rockets set for the first round, can we expect a dream versus Admiral, Admiral 95 situation with the player who loses the MVP going full wick, full John Wick on every possession? If so, I'm secretly hoping Harden wins the MVP. Unfortunately, we do not find the, out the MVP before round one. And double, unfortunately, we're not going to find out the MVP until after the finals. They're doing this NBA awards uh, show slash ceremony this year. And they're going to announce all of it at the end of June, which seems insane. I don't like that. That's too That's too far. It, they should just, for, as a special, uh, special wrinkle this year, just announce it before the Spurs Rocket Series. I mean, uh, Rocket Thunder Series, because whoever doesn't get it is going to be completely pissed off. And I think retroactively... We'll look back at whoever lost the series if they if they lost the MVP but won the series or vice versa, and be like, oh my god, oh we But this is not a admirable admiral uh, Hakeem situation. There's two times where this happened. David Robinson against Hakeem, they gave Robinson the MVP during the series, and Hakeem went out and just eviscerated him. Robinson was never really the same after that series, although he did have some back issues. But that was one of the all-time, I can't believe I'm not being recognized as being the best guy at my position on laying the SmackDown series. And then, of course, two years later, Jordan, Carl Malone, 1997 finals. Malone wins the MVP. I wrote about this in my book, too. I'm still not sure how this happened. It was like one Jackie McMullen Sports Illustrated column in March, and it got momentum, and everyone decided at the same time they're just bored of honoring Jordan. And they gave it to Carl Malone. And then Jordan torched him in the finals. And game one, Jordan, uh, Malone missed two free throws. Jordan made the game winner. It was the all-time, what the fuck were you guys doing? How am I not the MVP moment? So, uh, unfortunately, that's not going to happen this time around. But, you know, let's say, let's say the Thunder beat Houston in round one, but Harden wins the MVP two months later. My God, that's going to be awkward. Um, all right, let's take a quick break to talk about wine. My wife loves whining about my fault. She really loves wine. 
That's why I signed her up for TryWink.com because they made it so easy to get exceptional wines from all over the world delivered every month right to our door. It's a personalized wine club that recommends wine specifically for members based on the results of our palette profile quiz. Just go to trywink.com. They even take your feedback into account so they can learn more about your preferences with every order. Join for free. Skip any month. Cancel any time. They even have a 100% satisfaction guarantee. You never pay for a bottle you don't like. Sign up for Wink right now. Get introduced to new and rare wines that you can't get anywhere else. Find out for yourself why me and thousands of other satisfied wine lovers are raving about Wink right now. Wink, offering my listeners $20 off your first order plus complimentary shipping. If you go to trywink.com slash BS. That is W-I-N-C. Trywink.com slash BS. Free wine. I'm sorry. Fine wine. Personalized for your palate. Coming right to your door. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-C.com slash BS. All right. Back to the mailbag. I just realized I'm not going to get through all these questions that I'm already bummed out. But, uh, oh, this is based off the last question from Marcus in San Diego. Wouldn't it be more fun if we handed out the MVP before that Rockets Thunder round one matchup? Or would it be more fun if Harden won the MVP and then we get to watch Westbrook next season literally involve into the next level of humankind from the pure hatred he'll be feeling? Which would you prefer? I'm voting for that. I think the best case scenario here is Westbrook not winning the MVP for us as basketball fans because I do feel like that's when he just rips off his face and he just realized, and, and we all realize that there's just metal underneath and he's been a robot set from the future. Joe from Indy says, you being against Westbrook as MVP because the triple, because of the triple double is an arbitrary stat. That's Trump level hypocrisy. This from a guy who has created more clubs than an airline base on arbitrary statistical thresholds. Now boarding all 250, 750, 900 club members and veterans with small children. Oh, Joe, you 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 tease me. Um, I'm not against Westbrook as MVP. I just don't think he should be the MVP because he averaged a triple double. I think I think there has to be more to the arsenal than that one. Um, but you're right. I love making up fake clubs, and my favorite fake club is the 42 club, which is for the playoffs. And if you add everybody's points, rebounds, and assists during the playoffs, if they played more than 13 games, it's an astonishingly accurate and prescient indicator of if somebody was really great or not. And I don't know why 42 is the number, but uh, I rigged it and I tinkered with it. And it was the number that that was able to cut out the most Carl Malone season. So I knew I was doing something <laughs> right with the model. And, uh, and that's what it is. But 42, I think LeBron had one year where he was like a 53 or something like that. But if you look at this year, Westbrook with the 31, 11 and 11, basically. So he's... In the 53 club, I wouldn't be a 53 club, but way over the 42 club. And uh, there's another email that we have in a second that's going to base on this. But first, a, a stupid movie email from Toby in Philly. Toby says, I watched Man on Fire for the first time based on your mailbag. It's a decent action flick, but there's one glaring issue that I had to email you about. Oh, no. Creasy kills Fuentes with the C4 up his ass and he shows him that he has extra C4 and extra detonator and another butt plug thing. Then at the end of the movie, he makes the deal to trade himself and the voice's brother for Pita, the little girl. 
Denzel walks over the bridge, gets patted down, no weapons. And I'm all ready for the extra butt plug full of C4 to take down the last of the Brotherhood. But then we just get a lame epitaph of his death. He bleeds to death. And they roll credits. Are you fucking kidding me? First, the name of the movie is Man on Fire. How does he not blow himself up at the end? No way Greasy doesn't come to that meeting packing the ass explosive after promising to kill everyone involved with the kidnapping. I can't get over this. Please explain how this didn't movie, ruin the movie for you. First of all, bite your tongue. Nothing's going to ruin Man on Fire. One of the great Denzel movies of all time. You're right. That's how the movie should have ended. He should have blown himself up. I, my guess would be that Denzel just didn't want to blow up into 100,000 pieces at the end of the movie. And he liked the image of him just bleeding to death and fading and dying because it was just more fun to act. But you're right. Man on fire should have been the end. He should have blown up and literally could have been a man on fire. I'm with you, Toby. Nick from Whittier, Utah asks, why is everyone saying Tony Romo is going to be great on TV? I'm not saying he won't be, but what has he done to receive such praise? You of all people are critical of announcers. It looks like a really hard job. So Brian Curtis from The Ringer has been on this bandwagon for a while. He said Tony has not really given any interesting interviews in about 10 years. He's always just defaulted to being as, uh, I don't know, as, as purposely bland as possible to not make any waves. I am basing all my announcer um, guesses on Romo's future here from one night I spent with Romo at Jimmy Kimmel's house with Cousin Sal where we watched a Cardinals-Packers game and he broke down the game for us, the entire game. And then we went out to dinner and he did imitations of quarterbacks throwing footballs and just went to a whole other level of analysis and was so engaging about it that I left the dinner thinking... That guy's going to be the next Barkley. Now, the question is, is that just a private side of him or can he actually figure out how to be how to do that in public? So they do this news conference where they announce that he's going to be uh, Sims' replacement. And really boring interview with him. Just what? He just... There's a chance to be like, hey, I'm going to show show off my personality, my sense of humor. He didn't do it. That concerned me. And the other thing is, I, I really wish he wasn't the number one guy next season. I wish they had put him in the number two or number three spot and let him get some reps. I think, man, TV's really hard. And you learn on the fly. I got thrown in when I did Countdown for ESPN. I had basically done 10 PTIs and some stuff for Grantland. All of a sudden, I was on the studio show. And fortunately for me... The studio show, it's not like people go out of their way to watch it before the game. They'll watch it if it's on, but most of the time it's on at a bar with no sound and you just kind of have to look a little bit like you know what you're talking about, but it's really hard to be a disaster on a studio show. And I got enough reps and by like March, April, I felt comfortable and I knew where, knew where to look and how to say my points concise and all that stuff. And I felt like by the end of the season, I was pretty good at it. Romo is not going to have that luxury. He's just going out there you know, he'll have a couple preseason games. They'll do a couple test games. But, man, that's a hard job. It really is. And we're always unhappy with with color guys. We've really only liked a couple in the history of football. Tate, is Tony Romo going to be good? I hope so. Did you see he's going to be at the Mavs game? They're going to they're gonna let him sit on the bench in a Mavs uniform? I like that. <laughs> it would have been more fun if uh, if he had been on a team that 
had no chance of making it past round two in the playoffs. Yeah. Like the Bullets, the Wizards. Yeah. With the Wizards that signed him, that would have made more sense to me because they're only going to get... Sorry. That, I'm just making sure Cousins has listening. I wish you would have wore the Cowboys uniform, like with the with full on, full, full pads, full everything. Is he going to play for the, for the Mavs? They I, won't let him, right? I think... No. I heard through the grapevine that Adam Silver had like a stroke when he heard about this. <laughs> like, it, it, it just went bonkers. Just could not believe that they were going to do this. Because yeah. it opens the door for teams to just do this left and right. Yeah. Like, I could be playing on the Clippers in two years when they're <laughs> 22 and 60 after everybody leaves. Um, Ezra K asks, in the 62 season, Wilt scored 50 a game and had 25 boards a game. He also had a 100-point game, scored 4,000 points. Nobody's done that since. Had over 2,000 rebounds. He's the only other one who did that. Oscar, that same season, had a triple-double, and yet those two guys got crushed in the MVP by Bill Russell, who scored 18 a game and had 24 rebounds a game, less than Wilt. Ezra asks, I get that Russell was great, and he may have been a more worthy MVP based on defense and intangibles, but he got 51 first place votes and Wilt got nine. How do you explain this and not sound like an idiotic Celtics homer? It's easy. The players voted for it back then. The players voted for Russell and they knew that Wilt was chasing stats and wasn't fun to play with. All of them would have rather played with Russell and that 62 Celtics team. I mean, those Celtics teams were absolutely outrageously good. They were just crushing everybody. And Russell was the glue and the guy that made everything go and, the fact that it was fifty-one to nine, I think, um, I think actually makes a lot of sense. It would be interesting if the players voted for MVP this year, um, or so the players voted through the seventy-nine eighty season, and then it switched to the media and broadcasters, which is funny because you have about fifteen years there after it switched over where writers and broadcasters are voting for it, but they're really only watching their own, the teams they're covering all the time. We didn't have league pass back then. We didn't have, we barely had enough national TV games. So, you know, Moses wins in the 81, 82 season. He averaged like 31 and 15. He had a crazy season. He went back to back, but it's not like Houston was on TV. So people are just looking at the stats and be like, Whoa, Moses had a good season. They, wasn't exactly the most educated uh, arsenal. And it really didn't change until the late 90s when we started getting really good and thoughtful about MVPs. But if they if they vote, had players vote for MVP, I actually think Westbrook would win because I think the other players would appreciate how ludicrous it is to average a triple-double. Tate, do you think the players would vote for Westbrook? I feel like they would, right? Yeah, as soon as he got his 42nd, I saw like four or five players. Like Nick Batum tweeted 42 triple. Like all yeah. these players started LeBron tweeting. LeBron did it. an interrupted video. Yeah. Which uh, in typical in interrupted fashion was just terrible. <laughs> Didn't say anything. He just said, <laughs> wow. Like, oh, man, Russell Westbrook, man. <laughs> man, that's something, man. It's just holding, it's, somebody's holding an iPhone in front of his face. What is that product? But... uh but yeah, I think the other players, that's one thing we always forget, the players. You know, I think this is something with Kobe where, you know, stupid media members like me who I'm I'm holding Kobe to this higher standard of how he should behave as a teammate and all this stuff. And the other players are just like Kobe's amazing. Like, wow, holy crap, he scored 81 in a game. And uh and I do think we forget so it is it is good to catch the sea wind of, of what the players are kind of talking about and raving about. Cause the players always know. So anyway, I think, uh, 
they're the players, but I do think Westbrook would win. Glenn from Belgium asks, in your ballot pod with House, the logic you use to probably not choose Westbrook as MVP, with which I agree, is the complete opposite of your logic used to put Jimmy Butler on 13 mile NBA instead of Gordon Hayward. Hayward, the clear leader on a really good team. Butler, putting up great stats on a mediocre team. Hayward clearly deserves the nod over Butler. It's a good point. If I'm going to do the, if I'm going to value success the most with these all NBA teams, then I should be doing that all the way through first, second, third team. I'm with you. Although the Bulls now are, are looming as a threat to beat the Celtics in round one, which would, Tate, I can't tell you how nervous I am about the Celtics being one run, one rounded out. Do Have you, you think, ever seen a more logical upset pick than anyone over the Celtics in round one? They haven't played well for six weeks. What if Rondo's been saving it up all year? All That's the my games are on national scenario. TV. Rondo and Jimmy Butler, <laughs> who we could have traded for and didn't. And then like Meritich is going bonkers. And, and, uh, Fred Hoiberg's making good play calls for once. Yeah. The good thing is they don't have anyone to guard Isaiah. Yeah. But I do feel like the Bulls would make them sweat out. Indiana is like the only team I feel like the Celtics would actually beat. Levi from Seattle writes, in the last 12-ish months we've had, Warriors blow a 3-1 lead in the finals. Indians blow a 3-1 lead, complete with a Game 7 rain delay in the ninth. Falcons, Pats, Moonlight, La La Land, Trump, Hillary, Alabama, Clemson. We also had 73 wins from the Warriors and Westbrook averaging a triple-double. Are the stages set for an NBA lottery shocker? It's mm. a good point. If there's going to be something crazy happen with the NBA lottery... This would be the year. So what would be crazy? I thought about this. Denver winning the lottery, I think would be crazy. They'd have the worst odds probably of anyone. And uh, and if they won or if they got the second pick and they were able to add Lonzo Ball to Jokic and turn into the 86 Celtics, basically, that would be incredible. I think Philly winning the first seed, but then having that Lakers pick fall out so they would get the first and the fourth pick, that would be unbelievable. But here's 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 where I landed on this question. If you're going to use that motto of unbelievable comebacks or pulling the, the jaws of... The, pulling victory out of the jaws of defeat, pulling defeat out of the jaws of victory? Yeah, pulling defeat out of the jaws of victory. <laughs> then the logical answer is the Kings winning the lottery, but then having to swap picks with Philly. Right, Tate? Yeah. Sacramento wins the lottery. Like, we did it. We won. Oh, wait. We have to flip down to number seven and give it to Philly. And that they always be... have, like, the seventh pick. Like, that's the yeah, Willie yeah, Collins yeah. time. Like, oh, we yeah. got the seventh pick again, but we actually won the lottery. But then we did some weird Staskis trade, and there's a pick swap. And, uh, oh, oh, we're not winning, but that's our card. That would be the Moonlight La La Land moment. So I'm predicting that. I'm going to bet on Sacramento winning the lottery. I think that makes the most sense. Jordan from Auburn asks, if Jokic is the Joker, then who does that make Nurkic? The Riddler? The Penguin? I like the Riddler for Nurkic. It's pretty good. I mean, I Nurkic. Portland fans call him Nurk, but that's funny. If, they, if that becomes a rivalry, then he definitely needs, needs a name of that line. This is important from James Grillo. Don't know if you saw the recent episode of MTV's latest installment of The Challenge. But it contained the most interesting love triangle in the history of the show, Nicole, Cara Marie, and Laurel. And also the greatest dual gauntlet Inferno Fortress elimination matchups of all time. Arguably the two greatest female competitors, Cara and Laurel, Laurel won, and the two greatest, at least winningest, male competitors, Bananas and Darrell. Both went toe-to-toe. All of this happened on the same show. 
has any sport ever featured such an amazing off-court storyline combined with such a non- strong on-court matchup? I think not, says James Grillo. Grillo? Grillo? I agree. That that was pound for pound the best challenge episode we've ever had. And Bananas versus Darrell, to me, should have been pay-per-view. I, I would have paid forty nine ninety nine to see who was going to win that. I texted with Bananas after. He said that it was a three-round matchup with football where you had to knock down the other guy and uh, and drop the ball into the bucket. Bananas said they actually did 10 rounds. They edited it down to three. And he said it was like just deadlocked. And then in the second to last one, he kept tackling Darrell. And the time before, he tackled him head on and he got a little concussed. So he decided the next time maybe not to hit his head again. So tried to do a side tackle of him. And grab the jersey and pull him down, and Darrell broke through. And uh, and Bananas just has a lot of regrets, and he's very bitter about it. But uh, also tips his hand to an amazing uh, competitor in Darrell. I think Laurel is the world's greatest athlete, male or female. I think if if she played in the NBA, she could average a triple double like Westbrook did. So I don't want it to mean what she did, but uh, Darrell versus Bananas was was amazing. Hey, quick break to talk about Stamps.com. Convenient, easy, reliable, flexible. Those are my favorite words to describe stamps.com. Why wouldn't you avoid the post office? Why wouldn't you buy and print official U.S. postage with your own computer and printer? Why wouldn't you hand your packages to your own mailman right outside your house or apartment? Sign up with stamps.com. You can automatically calculate and print the correct amount of postage for every letter or package you send. It's the U.S. Postal Service right at your fingertips. Any letter, any package, any class of mail. You're in control of all of it. Stamps.com will send you a digital scale to automatically calculate exact postage. And they'll help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. You will never have to go to the post office again. Right now, use my code BS for this special offer. Four-week trial plus postage plus a digital scale without long-term commitments. Tate, you don't go to the post office, do you? No. Okay, good. Just go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. Type in BS. That's Stamps.com. Enter BS. Sign up today. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Before we get back to the mailbag questions, quickly on the Masters. So I had an all-weekend soccer thing for my daughter. I taped the Masters, and I tried to do the thing where you try not to find out what's happening because you're going to watch it later, and it's going to somehow have the same drama. That really hasn't worked in about 10 years because of social media. So... I started watching it on the Masters app on, on my iPhone while pretending to watch my daughter in this in this uh, all-weekend thing. And the Masters app was pretty great, and I got to see a lot of it. And then I went back and rewatched at the end. I My favorite Masters hole is the 15th because it also leads to the 16th. So you have, you have the possibility for the eagle on 15 and the water and all that stuff. And the gallery is great. And it always seems like good things happen there. But then it carries over right to the 16th. So that little sequence is the best. And uh, and Sergio's eagle on 15 was awesome. And he managed to get like a pretty good fist pump. But I, I've always wanted more from Sergio with his uh, reactions to putts. And it really felt like it was Sergio's time. And then he botches the putt on 16 after the great, the great drive on the par 3. It seemed like he was going to mess up. Gets to the 18, misses the game winner, the tournament winner, the championship winner, whatever you want to call it. I would have bet at that point, I would have bet anything 
on Justin Rose to win. Wouldn't you have Tate? Yeah. It, it was like the boat. So in 16, Sergio like came back and got the high five from Justin Rose because he yeah, was cocky because yeah. he had made the eagle. Yeah. And then when Sergio missed the putt, Justin Rose gets the first tee shot in the playoff and he's like super you know, cocky and jacked up. And then he blows it to the right. And it was yeah. like when both guys got cocky, the other guy ended up coming Can't in. Get sweeping cocky it. Yeah, don't get, don't just, get cocky. You just always have to assume something <laughs> terrible is going to happen. So Sergio, he won it. And I got to be honest, I hadn't really thought about him that much in the last five years. I just assumed it was over. It was a great guy to win. I always love when supposedly that, what was that? Like his 73rd major that he had in one. Something he was 0 for 72. Yeah, He'd been runner up four times in majors. So that was cool. I was psyched for him. I, I, I'm still ride with Spieth, though. I was I was really excited for Spieth yesterday. I thought he could shake it off from 12 months before, and and uh, he just couldn't do it. And I wonder if – I really hope that what happened last year didn't break him in some way. And he doubled 12 again, the hole that he quadrupled last year. I know, man. Golf. That's why when the whole Tiger thing happened, and I wrote some column that turned out to be controversial about – how I thought his comeback was going to be tougher than Ali's comeback from boxing. And my only point was that just like with the physical wear and tear in his body and how mental of a game golf is, I just couldn't believe that people were assuming he was just going to come back and be tiger again because golf. It's like once there's doubt in your head and that chip gets planted, it seems like the guys are just, you know, just not the same. Now tiger, I think was I would say more physical than mental, but it was definitely both. Anyway, back to the mailbag questions. Here's how the MVP should go, says Greg F. from Lake Charles. If you could redraft the entire league at the end of regular season heading into the playoffs, who would be the first pick to win the title if you could build your playoff team around that person? Wouldn't that have been LeBron for like the past 10 years besides maybe one or two Curry seasons? I don't think that's how the MVP should go, but it is an interesting exercise. I think... LeBron would be the pick again. I think LeBron would have been the pick every single year since 08, except for Curry last year. Curry was incredible last year. So, yeah, I I wouldn't go into the season and be like, all right, I got Russ first. Who do you guys have? Because I think the way with the style that Westbrook has been using where it's basically like a one-man show and everybody else is supporting cast member, it just has never worked for a title. It's impossible. Jordan, even when he was at the all-time Jordan Apex, still relied on other guys, and other guys made game-winning shots and things like that. You can't win the title by yourself. Michael from Miami just wants to point out that I I chose Joseph Nurkic for the Charles Oakley Award in Friday's Ringer column about... uh, about the guy I would bring into a dark alley with me from this season. He said James Johnson was the obvious choice. Second degree black belt. First MMA bout at age 18. He won in 97 seconds. Undefeated in seven MMA matches. 20 and zero in all of his kickboxing matches. And his nickname is Bloodsport. Yet again, James Johnson. James Johnson's <laughs> really like, he's the Dos Equis MVP of the year. He's the, he's the NBA's most interesting man this year. He, he lost all this weight. He lost like 40 pounds. He had he had some of the best in game dunks. He's an MMA guy. He was spurred this amazing Miami turnaround that unfortunately looks like it's gonna fall about one win short because Waiters Iowa got hurt. But yeah, James Johnson. He's the greatest player from Wyoming ever. 
James who, Johnson. Who are the other choices? Venice uh, Dembo? <laughs> maybe. Yeah, that's 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 all you got, Wyoming. Eric Lechner. Alex Becker. Now, this is an important question. Alex Becker says, as a diehard Celtics fan, how tempted are you to leave PG-13 and Gordon Hayward off your all-NBA ballot just to make them more likely to miss mega contracts and be more available to the Celtics in free agency? How often do you, as part of the media, actually have a chance to impact your franchise of choice so profoundly? It's a great question. (laughs) Talked about it a little on the podcast last week. I'm a huge karma guy. And... From a karma standpoint, I would not feel good about doing that. I, I would feel like it would backfire on the Celtics in some way with the lottery. They'd end up in the fourth pick or something. Not that I could control the lottery, but I just believe all fans have a responsibility to represent the the collective karma of our team. And that, to me, is bad karma. And I don't like it. And as much as it... So the, the point is, basically, if they don't make All-NBA then they don't have the chance to make an extra like 40 million bucks from their teams, which makes it a little more likely for them to sign elsewhere over the advantage that their team would have for keeping them. But um, it's a tough one. The, the, I, I would be way less likely to vote for Paul George. I think Hayward has a better case, especially because they're a top four team. They have a chance to get to 50 wins. He's their crunch time guy. He's been excellent. He's been efficient. I think you make a better case for him. On the other hand, it's hard for me to accept that he's one of the best 15 players in the league this season. So I got to think about that some more. Anyway, I would not do that just to uh, help out the Celtics. I think that's sketchy. Um, Tim from Boston says, after that Cavs game last Wednesday, I'm officially holding out zero hope for the Celtics in the playoffs. You nailed it in your podcast. Teams that win in the playoffs have to have another gear. We've already seen the ceilings of the Celtics and Spurs. They have no other gear. I'm way more excited for ping pong balls on May 16th. I love this Celtics team. I've really enjoyed them. I think they're missing uh, a four-quarter chip on their shoulder that they had just more of last year. And, uh, and you're right. They don't have the extra gear. Too much of their success or failure revolves around their ability to shoot threes and most of the time they shoot threes around 33 34 35 percent and when they do that they don't win if they have a game like they did um over the weekend against charlotte they made 40 percent of their threes they're just about unbeatable they take a lot of threes and and when they're not shooting well like they have since the all-star break they haven't been shooting well it's rough for them and uh, you know, I really think it, with the wrong matchup, I think it's a possible first round and out. I don't like how they're playing, and I think teams have figured out how to slow down Isaiah to some degree. They're basically just double teaming him at midcourt now. All the smart teams are just bum rushing him at midcourt, and they're trying to make everyone else beat them. And the right team is going to be able to do that. The, the worst thing for the Celtics is that Toronto's going to be the three seed. So even if the Celtics get past round one, they'd have to beat Toronto four times in round two. And I think Toronto is too good defensively. I, I do not think the Celtics can beat Toronto in a seven-game series unless something happens injury-wise to Toronto. I do not think the Celtics can beat them. I'm sorry. I love the Celtics, but uh, I've watched an extraordinary amount of Celtics this year, and I do not think they're built to beat a team as big and flexible and as good defensively as Toronto is. Plus, they can't. They have nobody to stop DeRozan, and uh, I just think that would be a tough out for them. So... Dan Bunick from Chicago points out the 2010 Cavs went 61 and 21 
LeBron went to Miami, the Cavs went 19 and 63. They dropped up by 42 wins, which is really a credit to how unbelievable LeBron is. Last year, the Thunder went 55 and 27. They're going to win 47 or 48 this year. A seven-game drop-off for losing a top-five player. Again, that's that's the best case for for Russ for MVP. To me, that's a better case than triple doubles. They lost Kevin Durant. They lost, they won seven less games. That's insane. Eric from Berkeley asks: Are we forgetting how incredible Steph Curry's MVP campaign was last year. The man averaged 30 points a game while making five threes a game and creating your WTF club, another club I created, while toying with opponents, entering a new level of heat check and putting up historically great advanced metrics. If Steph had this season he had last year, this year, where would he rank in the MVP race? So if the Warriors won 73 games and Steph had the season he had last year, I would vote for Steph for MVP because that is team success combined with greatness, combined with some of the benchmarks you need, which makes me think like, man, last year's MVP season he had was really one of the all-time greats if that was better than anything we've seen this year. I think one of the problems we've had with this year's MVP season is it's fantastic and it's been great to argue about, but all the candidates are flawed in some tiny way. Like LeBron's team isn't doing well enough. Westbrook doesn't make his teammates better. Harden hasn't played well these last three weeks and his team if it was 60 wins it would be a no-brainer but they're gonna be in the mid-50s and then Kawhi offensively has not been as good since the all-star break I think as we'd want him to be and offensively it's just not the kind of resume we're used to for the MVP we'd really be valuing defense and team success by doing that it would be along the lines of the motto of KG's 2008 MVP bid on the Celtics which he did not get Kobe got it but uh but yeah, Steph Curry, I'd put last year's Steph Curry above it, everything. Jason M. in Parkland Ford asks, if Georgetown immediately fired Patrick Ewing right now, <laughs> would that start the benefits of the Ewing theory? Yes, no question. <laughs> Tom Hanley asks, the NBA has seen the likes of Bill Russell, Bird, Danny Ainge, Kevin McHale, Steve Kerr, and Luke Walton, to name a few, move on from their playing careers and become successful head coaches. In your eyes, who is the next player, current, or recently retired to make the leap in the coaching arena. <sighs> Who do you think, Tate? Stackhouse. Jerry Stackhouse. He's not a great player, though. You don't think I so? I do think he'll be a good... Yeah, I don't think he was an NBA great. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. I don't... It's hard for me to imagine any of the great players we have now deciding to coach because all of them have made so much money. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... You know, they've all made between 200 and $400 million. And the thought of just coaching and staying up till two in the morning and dealing with dudes missing curfew and somebody being mad because somebody else hooked up with the girl that had DM'd them on Instagram. Like, those guys don't want to deal with that. Could Ray Allen coach? No. No, no for <laughs> Ray Allen. Uh, I don't see any of these guys doing it. I think Chris Paul is somebody that I could see coaching. Would be the only one. And... He'd be fun because all his players would hate him because everyone hates Chris Paul. They love him. They put up with him, but they hate being around him day to day because he's just so consumed with winning and doing everything perfectly. Um, Matthew Shelton in Johnsburg, Illinois asks, is there any sports streak more inexplicable than the TNT Bulls? No, there's not. <laughs> I don't understand it. 
I don't know. I've never seen a team gain confidence because of when they were scheduled on a certain thing. It'll be interesting in the playoffs if they have some Thursday night games. TNT should, they should definitely try to have game three of whatever Chicago playoff series be on Thursday night TNT. It would be like, they'd be favored by 12 points. Um, Zach Rowling asks, you've said several times that you think NBA expansion is coming and Seattle will be getting the Sonics back. If that happens, what cities are candidates for the other expansion team? So Seattle will be 31. I think Las Vegas and Vancouver would be the favorites for 32. Outside chances for Virginia Beach, Louisville, St. Louis or Kansas City. Nah, I don't see it. Mexico City. Eh. I, w- I would say Las Vegas or Vancouver would be the two picks. John W. in Arlington, Virginia asks, how much did March Madness change your perception of De'Aaron Fox? He torched Lonzo, took that matchup personally, and reminded me of how Westbrook has approached the season. Between his play, his balls, the emotion he showed crying after the loss, he really has made me a believer. I don't know if I'll ever be able to shoot, but I'll always go to war with that guy. I completely agree. I think it would be a huge mistake for him to fall out of the top five because he's a freak athlete who gives a shit and who plays hard. And we've seen that that usually translates. If you have the freak athlete part and the I give a shit part, that's going to work. And it worked. Westbrook's a good example. UCLA, you watched him that year. You didn't know what he was, but he was something. And he played so freaking hard. And he was just so unlike anyone else in that draft and in the last couple of years of drafts that, I mean, I remember when they took him fourth, the Sonics, I, I was shocked. He was my big sleeper of that draft. And I was like, man, if, if he could get to, if somebody gets him at like seven or eight, that's a steal. He went four and it was like, oh, ahead of Kevin Love? Eh. It seemed a little iffy, but I also wasn't against it. I feel the same way with Fox. I think he'll go between four and seven and... He's just too good of an athlete. He's going to be a dominant defensive player. He's going to play hard. He's going to care. I think he's going to learn how to shoot. If anything, Kawhi would be the kind of guy I would look at him for. Tate, you love Darren Fox, right? He just never shot more than five threes in a game, so he knows what he's good at, right? It's, it's like not like Russ where he just keeps shooting threes even though he's not making threes. Right. Although Russ this year is up to like 34%. Do you see Russ is shooting nine threes a game since the All-Star break? Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> yes. But... uh <laughs> I think Fox will make somebody happy. Here's a question from Richard. April 19th, the day the Pats visit one of the most unpopular presidents in history. There will be definitely be a picture of Trump's arm around Brady's shoulder with both flashing a thumbs up. How will that fly in the league and locker room? It all ends for Brady, I think, in another loss to the Giants in the Super Bowl and the whispers of, can he really be the GOAT if he can't beat Eli? That starts flying around. Kraft steps down, hands the reins to his son. We all know how that goes in sports. The Pats go winless for decades. The curse of Trump. Could it happen? Richard, you just sent a chill down my spine. I did not <laughs> like that question. <laughs> I really didn't enjoy that question at all. I think we should take a commercial break. <laughs> Major League Baseball is finally back. And thank God, because I don't want to think about football after that question. As the new season gets underway, the Ringer Podcast Network has baseball fans covered. With the excellent Ringer MLB show playing exclusively on the TuneIn app for the month of April. On top of that, the Ringer Podcast Network has partnered with TuneIn to give baseball fans a free 60-day trial of TuneIn Premium to listen to every live home call from every MLB game around the league. Catch the Ringer MLB show only on TuneIn during April. And with your premium subscription, listen to live MLB games on TuneIn, which I actually did this weekend on my iPhone when I was stuck at this soccer thing. And uh, I got to listen to the Red Sox, who had... Their entire lineup out, basically. I have a bad fit. Tate, I have a bad feeling about this Red Sox season. Mm. 
No bullpen guys. Yeah. Yeah. Setup guys matter. Mm-hmm. Red Sox don't really have any. Go to tunein.com slash ringer and subscribe. Download the TuneIn app. Start listening today. Tune in. Your everything audio app. And again, the Ringer MLB show with Lindbergh and Bauman is really good. And it it's for the month of April, it will be on TuneIn. Then after that, it will be back in the Ringer Podcast Network. Um, Tate, I have a couple more questions. You get to ask me one question at the end of this. So start thinking of that now. Great. It could be any question. Nice. You can ask me anything. So Mike Wofford asks, if you had to compare Carmelo Anthony's career to one of the following actors' careers, who would you pick and why? Here are the actors. Nicholas Cage, Josh Hartnett, Brendan Fraser, Orlando Bloom, or Samuel L. Jackson. And then he says, I was really just trying to think of financially rich yet critically unsuccessful actors. You know, like Melo. Shots fired. <laughs> I would compare him to Vince Vaughn. Vince Vaughn's had a very good career. He's made a lot of movies I enjoyed. His his performance as Double Down Trent and Swingers, I think, could be compared to Carmelo's winning the NCAA title at Syracuse. A great debut. The expectations of a lot of greatness coming up. And then uh, just kind of settled into what they are into. Not a bad thing. Carmelo's going to make the Hall of Fame. Vince Vaughn made some great movies. But... Uh, but yeah, Vince Vaughn would be my answer for that. Joseph Horner wants to know who was... Oh, I have one more Carmelo question. This is from Mitchell Ebner, longtime Knicks fan. Since he came to New York, Carmelo has refused to participate in anything that was not ISO Mellow at the three. He killed Lynn Sanity and D'Antoni Ball. He refused to stay at the four as part of Small Ball, which got the Knicks to round three. He refused to buy into the triangle. All he wants to do is face up, jab step, hoist a shot or drive, or take a three. He doesn't play hard on defense anymore. I think Phil wants him gone, hence the triangle for next year. Let Melo know now that he's going to be a cog in his system and that his stats are going to be hurt. Let him beg out. Once he's gone, they will change the offense again. What do you think? I think you're 100% right. I think Melo will be traded this summer to the Clippers of Los Angeles. I think Blake Griffin will be on the Oklahoma City next Oklahoma City Thunder next year. I'm going to make a prediction. What day is today, Tate? It is April 10th. April 10th. I'm going to make a prediction. You can play this on the YouTubes three months if it happens. A three-way deal. Carmelo Anthony to the Clippers. Blake Griffin's sign-in trade to OKC. And OKC sends uh, Cantor and some other stuff to the Knicks to make it worth their while to, to give up on Carmelo. What do you think of that, Tate? I'm into it. You're into it? Blake and Russ. Blake and Russ. Like little Blake pick goes and home. roll? Yeah. Yeah. Blake goes home. And and they get along for about 10 games. <laughs> Jay Valdosta asks, Rajon Rondo is almost leading the Chicago Bulls in three-point percentage. Is there a better way to describe this season? Rondo's at 36.6. Butler's at 36.9. McDermott's 37.3. And, and uh, Grant is at 36.8. Jesus. So if Rondo hits a couple threes, he could lead the Bulls in threes. That's not even the 10 craziest things about this season. Jeff Stone wants to know, who owns the rights to the old Grantland.com name and website? How proud will you be when someone takes it over and turns it into a porn site? Uh, first of all, very proud. Very proud. Excited. Delighted. Um, vindicated in a lot of ways. ESPN owns, this, owns the site. And uh, 
my guess would be that it's just going to be locked behind some metal safe for years and years until they have to start hawking stuff for cash, which could be in about two years. Austin Fahey wonders, I always hear about Chris Paul point God and how he's the best point of all time. But if I could play with Chris Paul or Magic, I'd pick Magic. Chris Paul or Steve Nash, I'd pick Steve Nash. I'd rather play with Jason Kidd, Detroit Isaiah Thomas, John Stockton, or any all-time great point guard before Chris Paul. Is this the same hate the Clippers always get, or is this a fair statement? That was from Austin Fahey. I'm with you. I wouldn't want to spend 10 years of my life playing with Chris Paul. I just think he's difficult to, to, to play with. He's a perfectionist. He's that guy in your office who's just constantly like, hey, man, your desk dirty. Hey, man, I thought, I thought those things were, I thought you were going to send me those reports at two. Hey, man, we had a meeting. You're a minute late. He's that guy. I think, I, I just think after like five years, you just kind of lose the will to live. And here's my evidence. I've been watching the Clippers this season. He's a perfectionist. He's the very demanding guy. He stomps around on the court and he, he, this vibe is created that is just, you're whining at the calls and you do this, do that. He's yelling at people. I don't know. It's not that fun. Tate, would you want to play with Chris Paul for five years? He's just never won anything, unfortunately. And he's never won anything. We were always pulling for him. But Isaiah Thomas won titles. Yeah. Isaiah Thomas had a four-year run where the Pistons were in the hunt year after year after year with so, probably more talent than Chris Paul. It's a lot of pressure on his teammates. I think that's what it comes down to. Like when Wake lost in the second round, it's always, it always felt like there was just like a lot of pressure on everyone else to perform for him. He's rigged it perfectly. Boz Bostrom from St. Joseph says, I've been doing my job as a dad and introducing my son to the Rocky series. We're through Rocky four. What do I do now? Do I stop altogether? Do I skip to Rocky Balboa? Or do I continue on with Rocky Five? I'm really glad you asked this question. You go from Rocky Four right to Creed. <laughs> you forget that Rocky Five happened and you don't acknowledge Rocky Balboa. You just go from Rocky Four to Creed. It's fine. You don't ask any questions. Adrian's dead of cancer. You get it. You'll you'll understand that from Creed. Rocky Four, Creed dies. It goes right to Creed, which Creed's son. It just makes sense. I, If I'm doing a Rocky marathon on AMC, if they put me in charge of AMC, I'm doing a Rocky marathon. I would, The Rocky marathon for me would be the first four. And then Creed. Um, I think we got through all the questions, Tate. Hold on. Oh, Christopher from Jersey City asks, is Popovich so smart that the Spurs intentionally laid down against the Lakers on April 5th in an effort to reduce the Lakers' draft odds? Mm. The Lakers' win essentially sealed their fate as the third worst record, which increased the possibility of forfeiting their pick to the Sixers from 41.8% to 53.1%. And also, if that happened and they lost their pick, they'd also have to owe their 2019 first-round pick to the Magic. Stripping a potential rival of two huge assets via a meaningless regular season game seems like a total pop move. What do you think, intentional or coincidental? One million percent intentional. <laughs> There's no question that he looked at that and did that. And if I was a Laker fan, I would be having a stroke that we went from the second seed to the third seed. Because third seed, all you need is one team to jump you and you're out. You're on the outside looking in. 
I think Pop did that intentionally. What do you think, Tate? Yeah, and Julius Randle had a great game, and Gasol kind of laid down. Gasol laid down? Yeah, for Randle to have a good game. And if you're letting Julius Randle have a good game against you, that seems purposeful. I was I was already to be agitated by Celtics Brooklyn tonight. Now it doesn't matter because Brooklyn's quitched the one spot. Thank you, Brooklyn. But, uh, you know, if you're the Celtics, do you want the Celtics to get the number one pick? If I'm Isaiah Thomas, do I want them to get the one seed or the one seed in the uh, in the lottery, get the first pick, and take Markel Fultz who's going to take my job? I wouldn't want that. I would try to shoot like six for 32 in that game to try to get Brooklyn out of there. So, uh all right, I think we covered it. We didn't really talk about it, NFL draft. I didn't want to talk about NBA because we have uh, a bunch of NBA stuff coming. I'm going to do my awards column and all that stuff. Tate, you get one question. So there's this trend, right? And all the champions have gotten redemption. Patriots lost to the Broncos because of Owen Daniels. They come back the next year, they win the title. Clemson loses to Alabama. They come back the next year, they win the title. North Carolina loses. They come back, they win the title. So, with that in line, do you see Warriors come back against the Cavs and win the title, and then the Indians come back and win the World Series? So you're saying this is the year of the avenge my terrible defeat? Yes. Hmm. We're three for three so far. I don't think the Cavs are going to make the finals. Yeah. See, that that, that throws a wrinkle into everything. I don't think the Cavs can beat the Raptors. That Everyone thinks everything. I'm like trying to reverse things to Raptors. I, I, what have I seen from the Cavs that makes me think they're going to, you know, LeBron turned it up in that Boston game and was like, oh, yeah, LeBron's the best player in the league. But then they lost their next two. They can't hold a lead. They don't have a bench. Mm. It's weird to me that LeBron and any team with LeBron and Kyrie, I don't even who did. Why do the other teammates even matter that much? That should be a 60 win team. Yeah. They have two of the best 12 players in the league. And they're sort of de- they just brought Kay Felder back from the D League, and they're depending on Larry Fan- Larry Sanders to like develop so that he can play in the playoffs. That's Kevin not Love, good. Kevin Love doesn't seem right. I thought that jump ball at the end of regulation in the Atlanta game. Did you see that? No. There's a jump ball. Atlanta's down two with like five seconds left. Jump ball gets bounced. Kevin Love dives to the floor, but not a hundred percent. Not like his life depended on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, sort of think, like his career in Cleveland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Except for the last minute against Steph when yeah. he was like, I'm not letting Steph score on me. Ball game, Millsap ends up making a shot, tie the game. Mm-hmm. And now they have to uh, sweat out the one seed. But I, I don't like what I'm seeing from them. And, you know, Kevin O'Connor in our NBA Slack, we've been talking about this a lot. There's been a lot of what the fuck is Ty Lue doing mm-hmm. with this season. Ty Lue might not be a good coach. Yes. They've certainly blown a lot of leads, and their defense is terrible, and the chemistry looks off. And I just find it hard to believe that with LeBron and, and Kyrie in this particular season, that that's not a 59-win team. Yeah. Those guys are good for 55 a game. I haven't been happy. Like Kyrie's stats are fine for him. He's going to average 25 a game. Like Kyrie should be going off. Yeah, there should be game once a week. They should be like, all right, Kyrie, here's your game. We're going to score 48 points. Like what Dame Lillard's done these last two months. I'm shocked that Kyrie, where's been the two month Kyrie stretch where he just destroys everybody. And he gets the shots like Dame Lillard has like 30 more shot attempts than him on the season. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. All right. That's it for the mailbag. If you want to send, uh, we might do this again. Did you think that worked or we're never doing this again? No, I loved it. It was fun. You loved it? Yeah. Thanks, Tate. 
He'll get the people involved. Get the people involved. Yeah. Get the people what they want. <laughs> but uh, it's a good way for me to bounce around and hold different bunch of topics. And also, like, if I can't actually write the mailbag, it's fun to do these on here. So if you want to send a question to the next, either the, the mailbag I write or the podcast mailbag, send it to the mailbag at theringer.com. Once again, the mailbag at theringer.com. Thanks to stamps.com. They bring the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. They'll send you a digital scale, automatically calculate exact postage. You'll never have to go to the post office again. Sign up for stamps.com. Use promo code BS for a four-week trial plus postage plus a digital scale. With no long-term commitments, click on the microphone at the top of the stamps.com homepage. Type in BS. Thanks to SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor. Thanks to TuneIn. Don't forget about the 60-day free trial of TuneIn Premium. Just go to TuneIn.com slash Ringer, and that's where you can find our MLB, uh, the Ringer MLB show for the rest of this month. Don't forget about Tate's podcast with Lombardi, GM Street, which you can find on the Ringer NFL show feed. Are you going? When are you going to two week before the draft? Yeah, Soon? I think it, we were talking about this week, maybe next week. Okay. You're doing a good job on that. I'm proud of you. Thanks. I remember when you were just this little kid from North Carolina with 20 cents to your name. and That thing was 15 cents. 15 cents and just some clothes and that's it. Did your girlfriend come this weekend? She did. How'd that go? Beautiful. Did you get in a fight? No. That's great. That's such a win when they come to visit, you don't get in a fight. She didn't try to start one on like Saturday night at two in the morning? No. She That's said, great. She heard that I hosted a podcast called GM Street with Mike Lombardi. That and was every, it? Every, everything's changed. And then you had 20,000 Twitter followers? <laughs> How's your life changed since North Carolina won the title? Uh, I'm unflappable. Nothing, nothing can really affect me in life. I feel vindicated. It was you, a tough stretch. Last year was a tough stretch. How many times did you cry? Oh, I cried in the arena two or three times. Just, two or three times? Yeah, yeah. It meant a lot. I'm trying to think the last time I cried from sports. Plus, we booed Mark Emmert, which made me cry. Just tears of joy. I've never cried after a win. I've only cried after losses. Yeah. And after Lem Bias died. Yeah, that's worth that's that was, worthy of that. That was rough. It. Yes. I'm still not over Lem Bias. It's like 31 years. I still can't I still can't get over it. Yeah. I, st- I still think about him every once in a while. Yeah. I think about Keith Gatlin and just all those guys. It's a tough. tough it's one. a great doc. Wow. What a, what a way to end this podcast. We have two more podcasts coming this week. Don't forget uh, theringer.com. If you missed my um, my Independent Spirit NBA Awards last week, another one coming this week. We're also celebrating Fast and Furious all week on TheRinger.com. And there may be a podcast or two that I'm involved with that will help celebrate that as well. So until then, thanks for sending the mailbag questions. Talk to you soon.